Today on the Connecting Our Stories podcast, I am having a conversation with my new friend Eliana Lukes. Wow, you guys are going to be so inspired by Eliana's story. You're going to become more aware because of what she shares, but it doesn't end there. You're going to see the hope and the way that we can all come together to change a human trafficking story in our communities. Eliana is a joy and a light and that just shows how tenacious she is and how she truly has survived the circumstances of her life and risen above and is doing everything she can to help others who may be like her. Let's listen in. Okay, so you want me to start? Yeah, I'll, okay, so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell me whatever you want to tell me about yourself and let us know who you are. So my name is Aliana Luke, and I am a survivor leader. I am a mentor. I am a public speaker. And currently, I have come to be an author of a trilogy book that, that kind of highlights my journey and my story from um, the life that I have lived in and goes to my transition from um, victim to survivor to survivor leader and just tells a little bit about what has happened in my life relative to um, sex trafficking right here in the United States, but more so in the state of Minnesota. And I am two-thirds, yeah, two-thirds of the way <laughs> through your trilogy. And I am just so grateful that you've chosen to share your story because I think it's so important for people to understand sex trafficking in the United States. And I think that people don't. Do you feel like that's your experience too? I do. And that's kind of one of the main reasons why I wanted to write these books because I'm a crisis advocate here in central Minnesota. I have been a student in the university here at St. Cloud State. And I was a women's studies major for my undergrad. And a lot of the projects that I did were around women's rights and just feminism and talking about sex trafficking. And when I started talking about these things in the school, my co-learners and my professors weren't as aware of the situation that I felt as if everybody should be because I'm a part of this community and I live here and I have struggled with this transition and nobody has really known the struggle and I feel as if they don't understand where I came from then they don't understand why I fight so hard to get where I'm trying to be and I think that talking about it brings awareness and then once we bring awareness we can start educating people on it and breaking down a lot of those myths and changing the culture and the mindset to get to a place where the women who are stuck in trafficking or men too and boys. I just speak about women because that's what I am and that's who I serve. But um, we can start changing the laws and stop looking at them as criminals and seeing them for the victims that they are. And that's important. Uh, yes. All of that that you just said was amazing. I don't even know I want to affirm every single piece of what you just said. I think we make assumptions because we don't know people's stories. We only know the story that we know, and we need to understand 
a clearer picture of our culture and of the people that are uh, that we don't know and that's how we change things and i think it's extremely powerful and you are helping people you're helping people get that clearer picture so we can change the culture so we can change our systems and that's that's where that's where the hope is isn't it it is well can you tell me um start at the beginning at your beginning of your childhood and how you grew up and where you grew up and what that looked like for you so my father was in the military um he worked on um as a mechanic working on the tanks and and different things of that nature later on he moved on to be a military police officer um my grandmother his mother had migrated here from the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo. So when they moved here, my family was originally in New York. Um, my mother's from Minnesota. They grew up in South Minneapolis. And she ended up meeting my father when he came here for some other reason, which I don't know. They fell in love and they and my mom followed my dad. And she ended up getting pregnant with my brother and then having me so we moved across the United States and we ended up settling in Georgia. That's where I was born at in Georgia. Um, shortly after I was born, my mom and my dad together moved back to Minnesota and bought a house on the north side of Minneapolis, um, like 38th and Humboldt. And not long after I was born, my mom and my dad had some struggles. And whatever the case may be, my dad killed himself the day before my mom's birthday when I was three months old. So from there, my mom grew up as a single mother, and then she started struggling with her own chemical dependency issues. When I was about four or five, she was cleaning out a shed in the back of our house, and she ended up picking up a house jack and turning, and she fell out of the shed. When she fell out of the shed, they ended up taking her to the hospital and they found out that she had torn all of the discs in her vertebrae. Um, from there, she was um, transitioned to a walker and she couldn't really stand up. Um, after that, as time went on, she had other health issues. She has degenerative bone disorder and something called Stiffman syndrome. So she can't stand or walk. In her back, it normally goes um, bone, disc, nerve, disc, bone, all the discs have disintegrated and they crushed her spine. So she's um, wheelchair bound. With that pain that she struggled with, she like self-medicated with alcohol and drugs. So she just got head first into the chemical dependency after losing her husband. She had two little kids, which is me and my brother. I was like any other kid. I wanted to do fun things. I really didn't want to listen. And my mom was struggling with chemical dependency. So I didn't have a lot of parental involvement. I was with my friends, um, smoking cigarettes and drinking. And then I would get in trouble and the police would find me and bring me back home. And I would tell them, I don't want to be there. My mom's on drugs. So they would send me to shelters. Um, by the time I turned 11, I had hit every single shelter and group home across the state of Minnesota. So um, Little Sands Group Home in Wilmer, I, I mean, up in Reamer, Minnesota. I was in Chisholm, Shelter Care for Girls, St. Joseph Home for Kids. And then um, I want to say in 95 or 96, I was 12, I landed in 
I got out of Hennepin County Homeschool, which was a Minnesota Department of Corrections locked facility for children. But they sent me to Heartland Girls Ranch. And I ended up staying there for a year and meeting some people that ended up becoming a huge factor in my life way down the road. So I was in Heartland Girls Ranch and I learned about horses and about um team leadership and different kinds of things that I didn't have as my childhood and I got to play with horses. So it came a time where I was going to be released and they were going to send me back home. I didn't want to go home because my mom still struggled with drugs, but they sent me back home anyway. So I went back home. And my mom was living on um, 14th and Newton in North Minneapolis, which was a pretty rough neighborhood. And she was still struggling with her chemical dependency. So the same cycle went on. I just did the same thing all the time. I really wasn't at home. I would just walk in the sheets and meet people and have friends and smoke weed and cigarettes and drink alcohol. And I was on Broadway one day and I had met this man and he was like talking to me. I was ignoring him. I was walking down the street and he kept calling after me. So I stopped and I'm like, what's up? And I knew he was way older than me. You could tell by looking at him. He was standing outside of a bar. It was in front of Delisi's when Delisi's was on Broadway. So his name was Bougie. I told him um, what my name was and we ended up spending time together. And over probably like a six month period of time, he would pick me up, take me to give food and just kind of like um, start intertwining his life with mine spending time with me um we would have sex with one another we had went to a restaurant and we had conversations so he knows my name he knows where i live he knows i live with my mom he knows she struggles with chemical dependency he knows i'm only 13 going on 14 and this relationship begins um, he befriended old, me and t- tell me how old he was because I, I mean I know because I read it so he was like he was like in his 20s 24 20, 24 he was 24 he was grown and you and, were in um, life where you know your basic needs weren't really being met because your mom I mean how, can I just comment on your mom what a what a hard life she was dealt also right like yeah, that's awful. That's some of the worst pain I think you can experience is is your discs all going disappearing, and she was in pain, and she was trying to manage and survive. And so then your your home experience, you weren't getting the things you needed, like food. Not at all. And I didn't recognize the things that my mom was going through as having issues. I recognized those things as reality, as normalcy, because that's what, what what my life was like. And that's the only thing that I knew. But yeah, my mom didn't have a job. She got a widow's pension from the army from when my dad died. And she also got a check for me and she got a check for my brother. So she, her check was probably $1,200 a month. Mine was seven. My brother's was seven. And that's what she lived off of. She didn't have a driver's license. She couldn't drive a car because she couldn't stand or walk. And she spent the majority of her money on drugs. So 90% of the time she didn't pay the rent and we moved from place to place or we live in a car that my brother would drive or just all kinds of different, just different situations outside of what it was that I was dealing with on my own separately. Right. And so, so me and my brother enter in bougie at this, at this point in your life. 
Yeah, but even before that, kind of like as me and my brother were trying to navigate going from children to adolescents, we would do different things. So we would have food. We'd steal from the store. We'd do all kinds of different things that we would learn from our environment to get things that we needed. Right, to survive. Correct. So then, and and a lot of the things are sensitive. So, and it's very intricate things that happen on different kinds of levels that make all the risk factors for me just multidimensional. So I do encourage people afterwards just to read my book because there's some sensitive things that I really don't want to say on the air, but I go into a lot more detail within my book. But I was involved in all different kinds of things to try to make sure that I could survive. For sure. So that. Go read Eliana's book. <laughs> so enter Gary Evans. His name is Bougie. He's a grown man and he sees me as a child. But I don't see what he sees and I don't understand what he understands because I'm still a child and my my lobes and stuff are still developing in my brain. So I shouldn't have to be the one making these adult decisions. I should be able to trust somebody else in my life. And I thought that I could. So this relationship ensued and I started meeting his family and his sisters and he would take me to barbecues and to his family's house. And he ended up having like this big, huge family reunion. So we were at this barbecue and I was drinking and smoking weed and playing dominoes and cards with everybody. And then I didn't think anything of it. A couple of weeks later, he had told me that one of his uncles that I had been spending time with at the barbecue had died and asked me, would I go to the funeral with him in St. Louis, Missouri? And I told him, you have to ask my mom because I don't know if she's going to let me go. But she, I kind of knew that she would because she really, I would come and go. I wouldn't be at my house every single night sleeping in my bed. There could be days or weeks at a time where they wouldn't see me because I'd be hanging out with friends or couch hopping or just doing all different kinds of things. Bougie asked my mom if he could take me to St. Louis and my mom said, yeah. So I packed the bag and we left. Um, as we were going to St. Louis, Missouri, I kind of remember bits and pieces of it more than others, but I can never forget. We were going, we were on the freeway on 94, traveling out of state, and um, he stopped at this gas station. It was a Sinclair gas station, and it had a little dinosaur on a circle and an emblem on the outside of the gas station. And it was one of the gas stations where you had to go inside and ask for a key, and then you get the key to the bathroom. And he went inside, he got the key to the bathroom, and he came outside and told me to come and get out of the car. So I went to the bathroom with him, and he told me to strip. My heart started beating, but I didn't know what to do, so I took my clothes off. And my back was to him, and he was twisting wire hangers together. And once I was naked, he took the hangers, and he hit me from the top of my neck to the back of my knees, and he told me that he was a pimp. And he told me that I wasn't going to see my family again and that I was going to do what he told me to do. And then he beat me with those hangers and then he threw me into the trunk of the car. And he took me to St. Louis, Missouri, and I had been with him after that. So I remember turning 13 in St. Louis. Yeah. So at this point, how long had he been like building a relationship with you? Probably from about six months, six months to almost a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, of us spending time together mm-hmm. yeah so you trusted him i had traveled out of town with him before and but it wasn't like that it was different mm-hmm. 
So, yeah. And so I re- I had I had turned. I remember being in here with St. Louis. I was with him in St. Louis, and we had spent a lot of time together. I was working for different agencies because he had got me a fake ID. He had taught me how to book calls on agencies and get hired. So I had been working down there. We would travel back and forth to Minnesota on different occasions just to see my mom or he would leave me in St. Louis or leave me in different states and just have me wire money back and forth to him. And after I had been with him for a few years, I had started getting older and and, and started sometimes um, not really following his rules or his direction, and I would cause discord with him and the other women that he was trying to bring into the house because I had started feeling kind of wanting, seeking that independence, not really wanting to be in this relationship with him, and not really feeling comfortable with the things that were happening, but not having too many options to try to get away. And um, I ended up getting arrested in St. Louis, Missouri, and getting in contact with some police officers who ended up just making a huge difference in my life. But I was very resistant to them. I didn't allow them to help me because I was still um, struggling with that relationship that I had with my trafficker and and feeling as if just different kinds of emotions. So um, I had went back to Minnesota and he followed me back here and kept trying to get me to come back to him. and then. There were situations what happened, like he'd pour gasoline on my mom's house and try to burn it down. And he would catch me and beat me up and 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 a whole bunch of different situations. But when the police officers originally had contact with me, they kept having contact with me. So they would call me or just show up or just randomly be someplace. And then I started reaching out to them because I was scared or and scared or with the more violent he became, the more that I tried to run away from him. After he tried to burn my mom's house down, I was done. So I ended up talking to the police and, and then just dealing with my own situations and ended up being brought back to the state of Missouri because Missouri was the only state that would pick up the trafficking case. I had been trafficked through Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, um, a couple of places in Vegas. I had been to some provinces in Canada, but throughout, and I was as a minor being transferred across state lines, he would put me on the Greyhound bus and then he would follow the bus so he wouldn't be the one driving me across state lines. But either way it goes, St. Louis, Missouri was the only one who picked up the case because I had been arrested in St. Louis, Missouri. Can you... With a fake ID and with a car that had been registered to one of his family members. So is that why St. Louis was the only one that picked it up because the arrest happened there? Or do you think it's also because there weren't a lot of really great laws surrounding or or awareness about sex trafficking at that time? Do, Do you think that played into it at all? It was a combination of both because not only was I arrested there, I was arrested there and um, I was a minor who had been listed as a runaway from the state of Minnesota. And I also had so much cash money on me and um, two different state fake IDs. So I had multiple IDs with my name on it from different states. But my fingerprints didn't match those IDs, so they knew I was a minor child. So that kind of invoked a deeper investigation into who is this child? Why is she driving a car registered to these this family when she why does she have multiple IDs from multiple states? 
So and they got that arrest. Tell us how old you were. I was 14, almost 15 when I was arrested in the state of St. Louis, Missouri. And I had been with Bougie for a couple of years by then. <laughs> Once I was back in the state of Minnesota, it took them a while to build a case, but their investigations didn't just stop at me. I did end up going back to the state of Missouri and I testified in front of a grand jury, as did multiple other people. The grand jury testimony came back with a 44 count indictment, naming 15 people in the indictment. Seven of those people were ringleaders. But when the indictment they came out, they found out that this was multi-generational. So grandfather, son, uncle, cousin, brother, nephew of one family. And they have been operating a nationwide prostitution ring for almost 30 years. It was the family business. So it was the family business. Once the indictments came out, this was the front page news across the nation. CNN, Channel 5 News, um, all kinds of newspapers and the internet was going crazy. They said it was the biggest prostitution ring in United States history. And it was named the Notorious Evans Family out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Once they were arrested, half of the individuals of the family took plea deals and pled guilty. The other half went to trial. So I had to go back to court and testify in front of um, the jury in an open court and um, my trafficker was there and I ended up testifying and then um, I went back to Minnesota because I had some other things going on and the the sentencing came out. The last seven who had went to trial were convicted on all charges in the 44 count indictment. Um, and some of these charges included um, transferring women across the state line for e-commerce transferring minors across the state lines for e-commerce and um, prostitution. Um, they just say, they call it e-commerce and interstate exploitation is what they call it. And then the biggest charges were basically white slavery and tax evasion. Right. So those were the biggest charges because they were federal charges in that state. So are um, those... My traffic... The people who were indicted and charged and um, sent to prison, are they still in prison today or are some of them out of prison? So the six that the six individuals that pleaded guilty, they received sentences underneath five years. All of them are out and in the community. And I've accessed their Facebook pages since me um, wanting to write my books and share my story. And you can tell from the pictures on the Facebook pages, they're still in the life. Um, me as a crisis advocate, I know that some of the um, nephews and sons and um, continued generation of these individuals are still in the life because working at the shelter where I work at, we have had survivors come and name 
some of their children as traffickers. So, yeah. Yeah. The ones who didn't plead guilty and those individuals who went to trial and were convicted, they are still in prison because they got sentences upwards of the smallest sentence was 25 years. Um, one of them died in prison. My trafficker, Bougie, Derry, Darnell Evans, he is in um, the Terre Haute, Indiana Correctional Facility, federal prison, and he got 85 years. So it says on his release date that he'll be released in 2073, but I think he'll be dead by then because right now he's 50. Yeah. So I think it's really it's really important for people to realize what you just said about the family business and how it's now it's the sons and the nephews who were kids, you know, 15 years ago. And now they're the ones that are exploiting and trafficking women in the same way, because it's what they saw growing up. It's like what they were trained to do. Exactly, because. Um, there was an incident that happened and I kind of go into detail in my book about it where I had ran away from my chapter Kabuji one time and he caught me. And when he caught me, he kind of really assaulted me pretty bad. And his son was there and his son watched it. And now his son is, if you Google his son's name, his, his son has been in the media and in the news for sex trafficking. He already got a 10 year sentence for um, a burglary ring that he ran in North Minneapolis, like all kinds of different criminal activity and different kinds of enterprising of, of what it is. And I call it enterprising because it's not just one individual. It's, it's the recruitment of family members and the dynamics of this power that they create. Yeah. Wow. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how, so you ran away and that's how you got out and then you got connected with the police and that was really a lifeline for you was your relationship with those police officers. And then you were so brave and you went back and you were so young and you testified. Um, help people understand that time while you were being exploited. Help them understand why you didn't just leave once he turned on you and he started beating you. Why you didn't call your mom and say, I'm coming home. Why you didn't call your brother and say, come get me. Help people understand that. A lot of the times I didn't is because he, my trafficker held um, a different kind of power over me. He had me addicted to drugs by the time I was even 15. I was addicted to heroin and cocaine. And so that was the reason why I stayed first and foremost. Um, two, another reason why I stayed is because I didn't have any job skills. I didn't, I dropped out of school in elementary school. I remember the last grade I had went to was like maybe the fifth, the fifth or the sixth grade. So I had no foundation of education. And then when I think about it, I mean, I, I did try to run away from him. And when I did run away from him, he assaulted me physically in different aspects where I describe him further in my book. But more so, my mother struggled with chemical dependency. If I were to leave, 
I didn't really have a future to go back to. If I left, I didn't even know if my mom had a place to live or if she was living in her car or if she was bouncing around. So to leave a place where I knew that I was going to at least have my basic needs, food, a place to live and, and a warm place to glow and clean panties and yeah. clean clothes. I, I couldn't ha- I couldn't say I would have those things when I was living with my mom. And it's not that her intentions were on pure. It's the, the dynamics of addiction that she struggled with on her own, trying to battle the fact that she had two children that she was trying to raise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you want people to understand about human trafficking and sex trafficking? What's your like biggest that, question, heart? I mean, it affects the victim on different levels, emotionally, physically, mentally, and it's something that needs to be changed and it needs to be exposed to the community because if it wasn't about supply and demand, there wouldn't be a supply. The supply comes when the demand is high. And that's when I... That's where I talk about changing our mindset of the culture because right now everything is hypersexualized and we look at commercials for just any random products. We can pull out some shampoo, herbal essence. If you've ever seen a commercial for herbal essence, everything is sexualized. Hardy's cheeseburgers where the woman is sitting on top of the hood of the car and she's making noises as if they're sexual because she's eating a cheeseburger. Everything is so hypersexualized. So because of that, women are looked at as if we're commodities in this community, in our nation, in our world. We have a president who said that all you have to do is grab a woman by her muff and pull her around. And this is what sets the tone to why our children and our daughters can be put in situations and where they're trafficked. Because if we stop the assumption that when men or boys turn 18 that they get this rite of passage where they get to go to the strip club or they get to buy a prostitute or whatever the case may be if we stop setting that standard then we will be able to show the world that women are not commodities and then you can't buy and purchase sex because when an individual is bought and sold they like to pretend as if there's no victimization there. They like to make the assumptions and have the myths as if she chose to be in this lifestyle. And as long as you pay her well, then she should be comfortable with what it is that you that she's given. And the truth of the matter is, is that human beings should not be bought and sold. And that's especially for sex. Exactly. You're preaching my heartbeat right now, Eliana. Thank you for your voice. Mm-hmm. I thank you. When you think back on all those years, what what do you can I ask you? This is maybe vulnerable. You don't have to answer this, but what do you think about when you think about your tricks or the Johns or the men, the buyers? I hate them. I mean, I hate them. It was it's so hard to engage in that type of relationship with somebody. And it also sets the tone for a woman to not be able to have healthy relationships on her own in the future when it comes to wanting a husband or to be a mother or to have children because you already have that skewed emotional attachment to a sexual relationship because 
a lot of the clients or the people that call and spend money on a child who is so young are not individuals in which make you feel comfortable about yourself. It tends to attack a child or a girl or a woman's self-value, self-worth, self-image. And it's just hard to not associate every single relationship thereafter as of, well, what are you going to give to me? Or how can I possibly benefit from this? Mm-hmm. And when you're living life, you can't go through life in that selfish aspect of what are you going to give me? What can I have? What about this? What about that? And that's kind of why I, when I got sober and found my my community, my educational community, my sober community, my church community, why I went to wanting to serve women who are also trapped in exploitation to kind of do a thankless job doing that of God's work, something from passion of my heart, because I know I always felt like every other relationship in my life is, is that exchange. And it's so uncomfortable that it's just a standard and a value to what life is really worth. And I don't believe that. So that's why I work in crisis advocacy, because I want to be able to deal with somebody on their terms. I'm going to do this for you. And I don't want anything else in return. I'm just going to support you. And I'm just going to listen. And I don't need anything from you. I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to be. I'm not asking you for anything. I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I'm here for you. And I just want to support you. Because a lot of women who are in that life don't get any of that. They're always like, well, what can you do for me? And what can you, what can you bring to the table? And I just feel like that's not what life and what interactions are supposed to be about. Interactions are in relationships with people shouldn't be e-commerce. That's 100% accurate. And when you look back at your younger self, I guess two questions. First of all, what would you want to tell yourself or girls like you and you in the same find themselves in the same situation as you? And I did not send you this question, so you can tell me I'm not answering that. And then um Second of all, do you feel like you had anyone like that in your life who it wasn't like how, who you are to people? Did you feel like you had people like that in your life? Or do you feel like out of not having that now, that's part of you covering a need maybe? So living in the moment when I was a child, no, I didn't feel as if I had anybody like that. I didn't trust anybody enough because I started off on a rough patch with the things that I had with my mom. So I already had trust issues with people. And by me being running away and being in different kinds of facilities, I already had a detached kind. I had a, a, I didn't really have, I was just detached from everybody, from emotions, from feelings, from things. So I didn't feel like I had anybody like that. When I did go to the Heartland Girls Ranch, the woman that I had met there, she made an impact on my life and I knew I could trust her. I just didn't know how. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Okay, so I read so later, I read your first two books ahead. and I need to hear, I need to hear, the, I, I'm going to read your last one, but I need to hear the hope. I want to know where is the hope in your story? Where did the, I we heard where the turn went from being 
you know, you thought you were being loved and taken care of by Bougie. And then he turned on you, right? Like we heard that part, but I want to hear, which by the way, I said to my husband this morning, I said, it is a natural human reaction to trust people who are kind to you. And traffickers and pimps, they exploit that. They exploit that natural human instinct that we have. Like it is never wrong, I think, to trust somebody who is kind, especially as a child, especially as a child. And so that's exactly what he did to you. And, but anyway, so we saw that turn. So what's the turn for, to, towards hope in your story? So after I had testified in front of the grand jury, I had came back to Minnesota. I was dealing with my own court cases just because of some things that had happened along the way. But I ended up getting really involved in addiction. I struggled with addiction really bad. And I ended up over the next couple of years struggling in and out of jail, um, in and out of the workhouses. And then I went to prison. Um, I landed myself in prison three different times because as soon as I got out, I still didn't have any job skills. I didn't have any education. I was battling addiction. I hadn't been to treatment because I just didn't feel like I wanted it. I didn't know what I needed. The last time I got in trouble and went to prison, I got involved in their office support program and I ended up um, learning some computer skills. And while I was in prison, I got an office support certificate from Hennepin Technical College. Um, when I got out of prison, the last time I secured housing by going to Recovery Plus in St. Cloud, Minnesota, I got out of prison and I went to their inpatient drug treatment program. I did that for almost six months and then I transitioned into their halfway house, their journey home, residential treatment program for aftercare. From there, I was able to secure my own apartment and then I went to State Cloud State University. Um, I bounced around a little bit more after that, dealing with just a couple more issues that had popped up in my life, but I learned how to navigate them. I didn't, I don't want to spoil um, some of the things that are in the book. But when it's all said and done, I graduated from St. Cloud State University in 2016 with my bachelor's degree. I have that had a foundation of psychology with a double minor in women's studies and business ethics. I went back to St. Cloud State University in 2018 and graduated with my master's degree. Um, when I graduated with my master's degree, I graduated with a perfect 4.0 GPA. And my master's degree is in family crisis intervention. I was able to pull from three separate areas of marriage and family therapy, children and family studies, and early childhood special education to make a combined degree of family crisis intervention. Um, I work as a crisis advocate as a at a shelter in Wade Park, and we specifically work with adult women who are victims of sex trafficking and exploitation. While I was working with them, I seen what I knew all too well was the interconnectedness between chemical dependency and exploitation. Because of that, I went back to St. Cloud State University. I got a third master, I got a master certificate in addiction specialist. Graduated from there with a perfect 4.0 GPA, went back to Recovery Plus, did a year and a half long internship with the place that ultimately helped me save my life. And I ended up 
taking the Minnesota State Licensure Exam for the LADC, which is the Licensed Alcohol and Drug Counselor. Currently, I am licensed in the state of Minnesota as a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. I'm not practicing as an alcohol and drug counselor currently because I'm working at the shelter as a crisis advocate, but I have my license up to date. I'm going to keep it that way. And I'm just going to continue to provide those resources and support my clients with aftercare and build and just bridging that gap between um, sex trafficking and chemical dependency. So I kind of work as like the liaison or the person who is like extremely resourceful. All of the local treatment centers know me. They know who I am. They know I work at Pyramid Refuge. And I will call, I will give our women a choice. What I'll do is I'll explain to them the three different treatment centers, what they all offer, and then um, what's available for them at each site and let them choose. And then what I'll do is I'll call over there and then I'll just connect them like that. But I don't rally for any treatment center because they're all so amazing. I'm just hoping that. I have to be licensed for three years before I'm able to do the assessment for our clients by ourselves. So that's what my hope to be in the future is to be able to do our assessments and sign a level of care for our clients and then just be able to go ahead and, and, and assist them with making a decision about where they want to do their treatment at if they need that service. That's amazing. That's amazing. Every single thing that was hard and ugly and horrible in your story you've turned around and now you're using to come alongside other women to help them and good job I definitely is trying <laughs> it's amazing i am trying <laughs> yes so that's what i do and i ended up getting my gd in prison and just uh, the final time i had went to prison the third time was the time that really just saved my life and by that time i was tired i didn't i didn't know what to do with my life i didn't know where i was going and i just how old had basically then? given it up how old were you then eliana the last time i went to prison i think i was it was in um it was in 2003 or 2005. So I was about 26, 27. Yeah. So young, you have your, you had your whole life ahead of you still. I did, but I feel so old though. Cause you lived I just like feel, lives. <laughs> yeah, my spirit, I have been just so tired and just so, yeah. It's a I, I, I feel like I, it's a testimony. Going to who you are that Go ahead. You it's a testimony to who you are that you survived all of that i think so too if i had to pick an attribute that i feel i hold strongly on to i'm i'm resource i'm resourceful i'm resilient um i pray a lot i have i feel like i have a great a good understanding with my higher power that i believe in god um i struggle with my faith and God knows that. I talk to him all the time. I normally start our conversations yelling, but he knows that I'm getting his attention. So um, I feel like God had a big hand in everything that I was doing. Um, one of my favorite Bible verses is Exodus 14, 14. Um, you don't have to do anything. Just be still. The Lord will fight for you. 
So I see that manifesting in my life more as I wrote the books and kind of went through that. And the books were more so not for the audience. They were for my healing, but they were more so for not the women that struggle in the same life that I have lived. It's for the opposite of those who don't know anything about the life so they can just kind of understand how deeply some of these things go. Yeah. I want to ask you, I'm glad you said that because um, you and I are about the same age and I grew up in Brooklyn park and I, when I was first had married, I lived in Northeast Minneapolis and like all we're like from the same place. And um, I want, what would you say to people that are in the community here? What can we do? What's what people ask me all the time, what can we do locally to fight against sex trafficking? What what do you say to people when when we ask that question? I don't know. They there people see me. I was seen. There were other women out there on that block. I used to walk from Lowry and Emerson up to Lowry and Lindale down Lindale Avenue to Broadway and Lindale, from Broadway and Lindale down to Broadway and Penn. I walked on those streets up 26th and Emerson to Lowry and Emerson. So I walked those streets. I stood in front of people's houses, getting in cars from buyers and tricks. They would circle back around the block they would see me on, I would be on Larry and Emerson a lot. There's Loso's grocery stores right there. Next to Loso's grocery store sits the police department in that. I walked those streets so many times. I was there. I was in your community. I've always been there. I walked through Lake Street. Like I was seen, but I was also forgotten because yeah. when I was seen, I was looked at as a criminal. Right not as a victim. Right. And so that's is that why, why is that why you think people ignored what they saw? Because they made they made up a story about you? Like why do we in America ignore what's right in front of our eyes? You know, 12 year old girls, 13 year old girls being exploited and abused. Why do we ignore that? For fear of not knowing what to do, for the lack of knowledge about resources to help by protecting our own selves and our own image of what our community should be, by not believing that it happens in your own area, or just by the assumptions because, oh, she wants to be out there, she's on drugs. If she, if she get off the drugs, she wouldn't be out there. So a lot of those myths and misconceptions about how it all starts. Um, a lot of risk factors go and vulnerabilities go into um, a child being even susceptible to, to, to have those issues to be able to be trafficked. There's risk factors there. A lot of things are going on in their lives in order for them to even get to those kinds of situations. And a lot of it is homelessness, um, a lack of parental involvement, 
or even children who have history of um, sexual abuse, incest um, in the home, a lot of children who go through the foster care system or experience different kinds of abuse. Those are all risk factors and vulnerabilities that set the tone to allow a child to be able to become manipulated and coerced by a trafficker. Yeah, a lot of people think that, especially in our current climate, that children are just getting stolen from wherever. But it's, I really, my part of my heart is to help people understand that it's, it is what you just said. It's that coercion and that manipulation, and it's a relationship that's formed, and it's vulnerabilities that are exploited. And so we we can do something about that because we can go in and we can see the people in front of us, and we can make we can make choices to value them and to love them. Like what you said, you're doing now, being a support to women without anything in exchange. We can go be that in our community. Do you feel like that's valuable to fight against trafficking? Uh-huh. Absolutely. I think it's important. We have a lot of things going on here in central Minnesota, and we're trying to bring this issue to the forefront. Um, A lot of different community partners are engaging in us, and they're supporting us with a walk to end sex trafficking. And they'll they'll put out billboards, and then we'll shut down the streets, and we'll walk, and we'll march, and we'll hold signs. But it's important to educate, because not only do those children end up um, dealing with those risk factors that expose them to be allowed to be manipulated and coerced. There's a lot of, there's a lot of peer on peer recruitment because just for instance, let's just make a hypothetical um, scenario that's not too hypothetical. So a girl, she has a trafficker or a boyfriend who's convinced her to do these different things to make some money. And she's got a friend who has the same kind of home life as her. By her asking her friend, hey, do you want to come over here and dance with me for these guys? We don't even have to get naked. We're just going to dance sexy. They're going to pay us some money. And she's down for it. She comes with me. So now both of us go over there and we dance and then we use our money to buy cigarettes or alcohol. And then I have just recruited my peer, my friend into a life of exploitation because it doesn't necessarily have to be trafficking between me and a peer. Exploitation is, is when there's the victim and the buyer. Yep. Trafficking comes in when there's a victim, the buyer, and somebody who's benefiting off of it. And it can be a lot of peer-to-peer recruitment. And you can get stuck and stuck into a life just by associating yourself with some of the same individuals that struggle with the same kind of barriers and obstacles that you've been struggling with while you're living in this life of poverty and different kinds of dynamics of the issues that come about when you don't have a lot of parental involvement in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think this is the last thing. I don't know. I feel like I could talk to you forever. Um, But I want you to talk about the buyers again, because it's exactly what you said earlier. We wouldn't have uh, a product if there wasn't a demand. And I think that that, is essentially what you're talking about too with changing the culture and not looking at people as commodities and um you know girls wouldn't be recruiting their friends if there wasn't an industry to recruit them to 
So what would you want to say to, to the buyers? And do you have hope that we could see less buyers in the future? The only way I have hope that we could see less buyers in the future is if we start changing the laws. I know Minnesota fights against the safe harbor laws and bringing things to the legislative to try to hold the buyers accountable and the traffickers. And that's what needs to happen because if they're not held accountable, then nothing will change. Because the buyers to a woman in the industry are the worst and the best all at the same time. When I, when I was in prison, some of the only friends that I had were the buyers. Some of my clients that I had been at a, as a client for years were the only ones who supported me while I was in prison through my addiction. And that just goes to show how deeply embedded in this dysfunction this society is because they weren't supporting me because they loved me, because I was their friend, because I was important, or because they cared about my drug addiction. They gave me money, so they knew that I would always be there for them to be able to have sex with me. Mm. They have a, a buyer has no problem giving a woman $200 in cash for drugs. They'll give me that super quick. Because then I'll, I'll go get the drugs and then go back with him and then he can do whatever he wants to me until he gives me more money for drugs. Mm-hmm. They support your addiction. They'll support anything you want as right. long as you're there to satisfy them. Exactly. So what do we say to our legislators to get the laws changed? Safe Harbor for All. Resources for all. Mm-hmm. Very good. How can people connect with you? How do they get your hands on your books? Where are you at? I you mentioned a website. Can you share that with us? So I live in central Minnesota. I'm a crisis advocate here. Um, I'm building my own brand, DS. It's from victim to survivor to thriver. So my name is Eliana Luke. I can spell it out, but my website is www.elianalukesbst.com. And you're able to get my book on my website as PDF ebooks, or I have the physical books too. I can ship them to you. That's not a problem. Um, if you feel more comfortable buying them on a website, they're on Barnes and Noble. This website and Barnes and Noble is pretty reputable. People don't have to worry about any scams there. Um, also, they're on Amazon KDP. So your little Kindle book things that you guys have, you can buy them right on Amazon and they'll pop on your Kindle book. So Amazon's pretty reputable too. Yeah. You can feel comfortable getting them from both of those places. We're going to put all that in the show notes and we will put it on our social media when we promote this podcast episode. And I bought your two first books on Amazon and I read them on my computer and 
your story was horrible and engaging and valuable and it's redeeming. It's all the things. And I'm so grateful to you for the work you do. I'm so grateful that you persevered. I'm so grateful for your honesty and your bravery and your vulnerability. I, you feel like a kindred spirit and I am just really grateful to be connected. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. I definitely enjoy talking about myself and just kind of bring awareness to what it is that we can do to just continue this momentum of our movement and shut this stuff down the way that it came in as fast as it did. I just feel like bringing awareness is the number one key. If we don't educate people about the dynamics and about what's going on, then everybody will assume that it's not here. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we are done? Any Say anything you want. Thank you for believing me and believing in me and supporting me and just help me build my brand. All of you listeners out there, support me from, from victim to survivor to survivor. BST. That's going to be a movement. I love it. It is. It is going to be a movement. We're here for it. Thank you so much, Eliana. Thank you. I hope you not only heard the trauma in Eliana's story, but also the hope and the urgency for all of us to become aware and to start doing things so that we can change the story of exploitation and human trafficking around us. Eliana inspires me to keep moving forward, to keep changing the story of trafficking and exploitation around me and to work hard to come come alongside those who have survived and those who are vulnerable and to speak truth to those who create the demand to the buyers. I really hope that you chew on this episode, go back, listen, share it with a friend. And if what we're doing here at Stories Foundation and getting this content out, um, coming along survivors, if that's valuable to you, I would really ask you to leave us a review and head on over to our Patreon page uh, to support us financially. Because when you support what we're doing, you're supporting survivors and a community that is changing the human trafficking story. So grateful that you're here and can't wait to talk with you next time.